welcome back. Like Philby in 1917 when he reached Riyadh, we've taken a break from the journeying um, for Philby that resulted in 10 days of intense discussions with uh, Ibn Saud, the man that he was traveling to meet. Uh, for us, it's uh, been a period that's enabled us to look back through our photographs, to analyze the images from the camera traps uh, and all the scientific work uh, and recharge our batteries. So for the last uh, few days, Reem has been back in Jeddah, Anna's been back in Switzerland, Alan's remained in Riyadh where he lives. I'm uh, here in Oman. The, the noise you might be able to hear in the background is the sound of the waves crashing against the uh, sea cliffs. I'm, I'm currently camping just to the east of Muscat on some cliffs just above a beach at Tiwi. So really it's, it's an opportunity now to you know, set the scene for leg two of our journey. Thanks to Alan's um, calculations, we now know that we've, on leg one, we covered 2,000, just over 2,600 kilometers. Um, much of that was spent deviating south into the empty quarter to visit the meteorite craters in Al Hadida. Um, so a long old leg, leg one, and uh, leg two really is going to be no different. Um, 1,400 kilometers in a straight line if we follow Philby's route from Riyadh to Jeddah, but obviously we'll be wobbling all over the place looking and exploring places that he visited in his latter years of, of exploration. And then we have to drive all the way back from Jeddah to Riyadh. So it's gonna be a long old leg through very different scenery uh, and very different landscapes uh, to those of leg one. When Philby reached Riyadh, in November 1917. The outcome of the First World War, which was still raging, um, it wasn't certain. The Ottomans had a stronghold on uh, Arabia and the British office in Cairo felt that it was a gentleman to the west called Sharif Hussain of Mecca. Um, that they felt that he was the man to unite the tribes of Arabia to fight against the Ottomans. However, Philby and the people behind him in Baghdad and the Indian office felt that Ibn Saud was the man to perform that role and to unite those tribes. The focus on Arabia was growing stronger um, by the year. A war that started powered by horses was increasingly becoming powered by oil. Philby's journey plans pretty much went uh, as they in, were intended. You know, he reached Riyadh safely. Uh, he started his negotiations with Ibn Saud, but actually there was someone else who was supposed to be meeting him there who was being sent from Cairo to travel from the west. And uh, this man's job was to meet uh, Sharif Hussain in Mecca. Uh, Hussain and Ibn Saud did not get on at all. Um, and it was this man's job to meet uh, Hussain in Mecca and then to travel um, into the heart of Arabia, to meet Philby, to meet Ibn Saud and have discussions to try and resolve this dispute so that um, they could have one united front against the Ottomans. But uh, Sharif Hussain did not let this man travel inland. He felt that it was too dangerous, that Ibn Saud didn't have the 
control of, of Central Arabia and it was too dangerous to let him go. This was what he wanted him to think. On discovering that he wasn't going to be met in Riyadh, Philby saw this as a great opportunity. He was supposed to meet Ibn Saud and then retrace his steps to Algier, go back to Baghdad and report back to the powers that be in Baghdad. But Philby saw this um, non-arrival as an opportunity, both for him and for Ibn Saud. And he proposed to Ibn Saud that actually he should continue west to Jeddah under the protection of Ibn Saud and therefore prove to everyone that, in fact, Ibn Saud did have the control of those tribes and the allegiance of those tribes that lay to the west of Riyadh. And this appealed to Ibn Saud's sense of humour. They obviously shared that. Um, and so he agreed and he gave an escort I think it was something like 30 camels, 25 men, and sent him off and said, go with the grace of God, you know, good luck. Uh, and off Philby set to see Hussein. That's Mike Engelback, Philby's grandson. Hussein, when he first saw him, was so taken aback with his appearance um, because he was in full Arab garb with his beard and looked to all intents and purposes like an Arab that he came up, came up and gave him a paternal kiss on both cheeks. I mean, that was frustration. However, he then made it very clear that he was not at all pleased with what Philby had done. Philby made a remark which Hussein ignored, but clearly um, sort of thought, ha <laughs> um, this, this one isn't going to work, which was, well, I hope to return by the same way I came, you know, and uh, Hussein definitely put a stop to that. Uh, Hussein let it be known that he was uh, angry about the initiative, that um, he did not, was not in a, in, a, in a mood to reconcile himself with uh, Ibn Saud, that on the contrary, um, that he wanted to, in, to move east and start incurring more of the territory which Ibn Saud considered to be his. But let's park that bit of the story for now. I'm Mark Evans. If you're new to the podcast, then I'm an explorer based in Scotland and Oman, and someone who's fascinated by the inspiring world around us, its people and its cultures. In early January 2023, our Heart of Arabia expedition team reassembled in Riyadh. And like the beginning of leg one, it was a whirlwind few days leading up to the start line of leg two. I'm at a complete loss really where to start because today has been unbelievable in so many ways. Um, it's dark now, I'm sitting um, sheltering behind a small bush um, in some sand dunes just uh, outside of Riyadh and um, I'm just trying to make sense of everything that's happened. The icing on the cake I guess for the last two or three days has been the um, arrival into Riyadh of three members of the Philby uh, family from Britain and um, it was a wonderful evening a couple of nights ago when we all gathered together the Saudi side of the Philby family and the English side of the Philby family joined together for the first time ever uh, in a wonderful house, a wonderful dinner that Reem's family hosted for us in Philby Street, because so famous is the man that a street isn't being named after him in, in Riyadh. And it was just incredible to spend time with um, all of those lovely people and to be part of to be part of a really special 
event and lovely to see lovely old artefacts of uh, Philby's passport, for example. But really, today has been all about getting going, getting moving. And uh, it really wasn't difficult to choose the place to start the second leg because uh, he rode across um, empty desert for a couple of hours before he discovered the old ruined city, really, of, of, of old Duria, uh, which is very special in um, Saudi history. Today, it's a World Heritage Site. Um, it's probably the most important historical and political site in Saudi Arabia. It's the original home of the Saudi royal family, the country's first capital, um, but it was destroyed by the Ottoman Turks, um, but is being lovingly and painstakingly restored today in, in, an, in, in an extraordinary giga project. But really, uh, we today was all about getting moving. Once we'd uh, been able to say uh, cheerio and lots of media interviews with uh, TV and, uh, and and newspapers, but uh, Reem and I were able to start walking along the wadi called Wadi Hanifa that Philby followed as he left Riyadh in 1917. And um, he said, we reached the edge of Wadi Hanifa, standing in front of the most noble monument in the whole of Saudi Arabia. This is a huge rock on top of a huge oval-shaped outcrop in the middle of Wadi Hanifa. The base of the rock resembles the terrace on which the city overlooks. There are wheat fields and it is also surrounded by, by palm gardens and orchards, while the top of that rock is crowned by the ruined towers and palaces of Duria, which was once the proud capital of Saud the Great, Emperor of the whole of Arabia. Wadi uh, Hanifa eventually leads to um, another series of wadis that, that take you to an extraordinary geological feature uh, that runs through the middle of Saudi Arabia from north to south. It, it's really the backbone, the spine of Arabia, and it's called the Tuwek Escarpment. After we left Wadi Hanifa, we found ourselves at the top of um, the Tuwek Escarpment, um, so a morning that had been shared with VIPs and dignitaries. Um, we were now out of the city, um, several eagles um, slowly drifting past, one of them chased by a peregrine falcon, um, lots of swifts, these amazing birds um, whizzing by in the sky, a raven um, shouting cheerio as Reem and I got out the trekking poles popped on our backpacks and uh, started to follow this ancient camel trail that took us down and down these incredible um, limestone cliffs full of um, full of fossils because this was unbelievably even though it's almost 2,000 feet in the sky now it was once ancient seabed um, working our way down until we were able to meet Alan and uh, and um, the team who'd driven the support vehicles all the way around a long detour, a couple of hours journey for them, uh, as it was a couple of hours for us, but we were on foot uh, enjoying uh, some beautiful, beautiful um, weather, uh, grey clouds, odd bit of um, the odd bit of sunshine poking through, but uh, a really fantastic um, start to our journey. Mark, can you compare and contrast the difference for us in the 
geography, the geology, and the, the climate of Saudi Arabia on the eastern side where you were in leg one to the, the western side where you are going in leg two? Yeah, well, they, they are incredibly contrasting. I mean, all, all, all desert, but, but very contrasting landscapes, um, really. So oil, oil is really only found in eastern and southern Saudi Arabia because the geology is, is, is completely unique. You're looking at a gravel and sand landscape, fairly low in altitude, gradually descending to the Arabian Gulf. Um, the start of leg one was obviously closer to sea level, so it was much warmer. But as we ascend towards the heart of Arabia, which is Riyadh, in the in the in the real in the centre of the um, peninsula, we, we climb and climb and climb. And I think eventually Riyadh we reached it's about two thousand feet in altitude, so obviously much colder. Um, but leg two was was different in so many ways really the 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 landscape was you look at a geology map i remember alan had a, on the wall of his flat in riyadh a geology map of saudi arabia and, and and the colors are fairly constant to the east of riyadh but to the west it's a real really complex um mosaic of colors which tells you that diff, the different rock structures including volcanic landscapes uh, which is that that extension of the east african rift valley so you know, some days we were walking through sand, some days we were walking through beautiful Mad Max-like granite landscapes, other days over mica and schist and gravel plains, but peaking at about 6,600 feet above sea level in Taif, in the Hejaz Mountains, before we descended to the Red Sea at Jeddah. Um, the other contrast, really, obviously, was, was the climate that goes with that. Leg two was in January, it was much colder, and for us and Philby, much, uh, much wetter. And, and what challenges does this, the difference in the, the landscape, the geography, the climate, throw at you? The, the challenges are, are fairly constant. Really. There, there was a bit of sand on both legs. And, and when it's windy, then, um, you know, sand is pretty unpleasant, whether you're in the east or the west or the north or the south of Saudi Arabia. Um, you just got to keep trudging on. Um, the thing that stopped Philby was the rain because when it gets wet the sand sticks to everything it's really unpleasant and and if you're not on sand if you're on a clay soil for camels it, life becomes incredibly difficult if they slip and lose their footing you'll never get them up again and uh, uh, and, and that's a real problem so for us sand flying sand we have to adapt and wear sand goggles and, and, and some, something to cover our nose and our mouth uh, for us, the rain, well, we have waterproof tents, we have waterproof clothing. Uh, it's more of a challenge for the support vehicles than it is for the walkers, really. Um, and the cold, the cold is, is a delight to walk in most of the time. It's perfect walking conditions. You know, Philby experienced exactly the same, um, the, exactly the same challenges, ironically, in exactly the same place. To read a quote from his book, The Heart of Arabia, he says, We continued over a featureless course while the rain came down at first in a gentle drizzle and then in a steady stream. On we padded, becoming more and more miserable with every step we took, until soaked through and through, we reached the western edge of the Nafud, which is a small sand um, desert, soon after 11am in the morning and decided to camp. We chose a shallow depression in the sands. 
The camels were let out to graze, firewood was collected and the tents pitched, and we proceeded to dry ourselves as best we could, and for the rest of the day I sought comfort uh, in the tent. The snug shelter of my tent whilst outside, the rain pattered on gently with but a few breaks. It was the coldest day I'd experienced in all of my sojourn in Arabia. And whether it was owing to the cold or to the rough food, I felt far from well and turned in early to sleep after the sorriest pretense at dining and a strong dose of brandy. So Philby um, experienced the same weather conditions that we're experiencing now, um, or we were experiencing, because as I look up from under the shelter of my rock now, I can see all the stars coming out and just one or two wispy clouds high in the sky. Philby made reference to a ridge, a black basaltic ridge, nothing very significant in the landscape, but even the small things he noticed. And uh, when we reached that particular ridge, we were able just to deviate off the track slightly to a really well-known landform. I'm, I'm very surprised that Philby, Philby's guides didn't take him to it, uh, uh, and, and I suspect the reason for that was that they were just in such a rush to get to to get to Jeddah and they were always very aware of the fact that they were traveling through um, tribal areas where things might not be um, so safe. But a couple of kilometers off the track we came to an extraordinary um, sandstone outcrop uh, upon which are carved the most intricate drawings, uh, rock art, which really tells the tale of the landscape of Arabia depending on which authority you listen to between three and eight thousand years ago when these um these drawings were scratched onto the rock and uh, i really need to study the photographs that i took today a little bit more closely to see just how diff how many different animals i can see but clearly scratched onto the rock are lots of ibex uh, with curved horns lots of deer horses um hunters men uh, women with bows and arrows um either a wolf or a fox and and lots of uh, lots of ostrich clearly ostrich uh, we know from um, evidence under our feet that ostrich used to live in Arabia they've been sadly hunted to extinction now I think the last ostrich is re was reputedly seen um, in Arabia in the 1930s so they've been gone for about 90 years but certainly as we traveled through uh, an area of sand dunes uh, later on Today we were able to find uh, broken ostrich eggs, which will be well over a hundred years old, possibly more, and, and they're they're quite a common find in the desert here in Saudi Arabia. So this uh, this this rock it's it's known as Graffiti Rock One because there are several of them, uh, several such sites positioned along this 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 escarpment it was quite fantastic to see. So we spent probably best part of uh, 45 minutes there before pushing on to. An area of sand dunes uh, that we knew um, other travellers there in the past who visited from the capital city Riyadh tell us that it is possible sometimes to find flint arrowheads lying on the sand in what are considered to be old lake beds and this is one of the science projects that we're doing on Heart of Arabia. There is a project that I think initially was set up between Oxford University and the Saudi Arabian Geological Society. I think Prince Charles was the patron of this uh, project and it was overseen by a fantastic scientist called Michael Petralia and Michael at the time was in Oxford when I first met him many years ago 
He then moved to the Max Planck Institute in Germany and now he's operating out of a university in Australia. And Michael really is the global expert on this project called Green Arabia and, and the idea being that tens of thousands of years ago what is today uh, an enormous um, arid um, peninsula was as green as the plains of Mongolia. The, the global climate was different, the monsoon reached much further inland the dry riverbeds, we call them wadis here in uh, in Arabia, were once um, flowing um, streams for much of the year. But, uh, you know, that's a very rare occurrence. These days, apart from the last few weeks when it has rained very heavily, but, you know, around those water holes and those river channels, um, you would have had reeds and, and green sedge and grass, relative luxuriance, and you would have had animals, therefore, um, and people would have hunted. And... Uh, you just need a bit of flint in the local area geologically and, and your flint nappers can make the most extraordinary arrowheads. Scrapers to peel and skin the hide off an animal once you've shot it with your arrow. Uh, bigger than arrowhead, arrowheads you'll find uh, spearheads. Uh, we're not to touch them because they are national artifacts but what we do is to photograph them, put a little ruler by the side, get a photograph. So uh, sadly, we, despite looking, we were walking around like a policeman with our hands clasped firmly behind our back for a couple of hours um, because in between the dunes you find flat areas of gravel that might have been old lake beds. Uh, and, and we know arrowheads have been found there before, but sadly today we weren't lucky. We did find uh, broken ostrich um, shells which tells us a little bit anyway that uh, that you know there was life here philby in his book refers to herds and herds of gazelle we certainly haven't seen any of those sadly but uh, we were serenaded tonight as the sun went down by a, a little wheat ear sitting on the rock here so it's been a lovely end to the day the wind is dropping thankfully uh, but the bad news is it's swinging round to the north, so temperatures are going to drop quite significantly. So last night, 12.9 degrees, uh, quite comfortable in our sleeping bags. Tonight, a little bit colder, and then for the next three or four nights, it's going to be down to uh, single digits. So we'll be uh, wrapping up warm when we get into our sleeping bags and hoping that our uh, night's sleep is not as miserable as Philby's was here in 1917. Can you describe your, your camp setup for us? I, I've got... I've got a bit of an image in my mind, but how would that have differed from Philby's setup? Well, we probably had far more gear for a start um, to do podcasts like this, for one thing, and for Anna to do a photography. We were carrying drones. Um, so we had four-wheeled camels, two of them, um, uh, which, were, which carried that equipment. But, but, you know, in that respect, Philby had it relatively easy uh, in that clearly when one reads his book, his tent was put up for him every night. I, I do believe they carried a, a tin bath that he could he could dunk himself in every now and again. It wasn't a full length one. It was more more like a more like a bucket, oversized bucket. But um, you know, there was a cook tent would be set up. Philby wouldn't have to cook for himself as long as they had water, which they didn't, of course, every night. So sometimes they'd have to sit in the tent in the darkness, waiting for people to come back from the next well. They'd send out the fastest camels to come back with goat skins but for us you know we had to put up our own tents um not the end of the world of course but you've got to get your own fire going you've got to cook your own food so we were in that respect we were a bit more hands-on and independent but you know that's a, a another reason why philby probably had a bit more time to write those copious notes um and and, and to reflect and ruminate on his discoveries of of of, of the day 
well it's um day four and um i apologize if i sound like a cross between rod stewart and lee marvin but um i've had a chest infection for the last couple of days and i couldn't speak yesterday without spluttering and coughing and poor anna maria is down with the same thing and got pretty inflamed tonsils to the point that she can't even speak today so hopefully things will be better tomorrow but uh, we've, we have had a fantastic couple of days. It's now day four and Reem and I have been walking through some extraordinary landscape of granite outcrops and sandy valley beds which wouldn't look out of place were they in, in Namibia. We're getting higher and higher in terms of altitude. Last night's camp was at <clears throat> 3,300 feet and uh, temperatures are progressively dropping. The wind swung to the north and with the increased altitude it was down to four degrees yesterday morning and three degrees this morning, which when you're used to the 30s and 40s, 40s, it's bitterly cold. But it's been a fantastic few days. We've been trudging across um, sand dunes. We've gone through sandstone, mica schist. We, we're now in this extraordinary granite country, amazing peaks that Philby was able to put a name to. And if he couldn't put a name to it, he would describe the shape. So it's been easy for us to be able to follow in his footsteps. And I think we've grown more and more in admiration of the man. His, his spatial awareness of what was around him was extraordinary because like us, he's just walking in a straight line and you know, meandering between um, obstacles but pretty much a narrow narrow line and and yet he was so aware of what lay to the north and south and what wadi might connect with another wadi and so he was able to suggest connections of drainage systems and mountains which must have made the cartographers at the Royal Geographical Society in London so look forward to his arrival um, when he would come home because they would be able to add that incredible detail to the um, maps of Central Arabia. Such was the significance of the information and detail that Philby brought to the Royal Geographical Society from this 1917 expedition that he was awarded the Society's Founders Medal. And I just want to take a second to hear from the Society about the difference they feel Philby made to the world of geography. He didn't look at a single strand of the world. He was involved in a complete cat's cradle of events, of power blocks, of geography, um, of ambitions. Um, and the stakes were high. You know, we're talking about empire building and we're talking about independence. Nigel Clifford, president of the Royal Geographical Society. So the RGS has two medals that are given with the assent of the sovereign. So that's the Patron's Medal and the Founder's Medal. And these are the apex, yeah, the culmination of the medals and awards evening. Um, so the Founder's Medal uh, was first awarded in 1830. And its rubric, why it's given, is for the encouragement and promotion of geographical science and discovery. So you can see how he would have uh, been a pretty strong contender uh, for, for his endeavours. And it's a royal medal, royal approval is required before an award can be made. Uh, the, the award remains active and in the past has featured David Attenborough, Ranulph Fiennes, Chris Bonington. And I was pleased to hand the medal to the most recent recipient, David Hempelman Adams. Now, Philby was elected a Fellow of the Society in 1919 
And <laughs> he didn't hang around. He received the Society's Founders Medal in 1920 for his first two journeys in South Central Arabia and for the mapping of the area covered by the journey. And at the medal ceremony, um, I get to uh, provide a, a very small vignette as to why the individual has been uh, awarded the medal. And the then president, Sir Francis Young Husband, actually referred to the notable care with which Philby had trained himself in geographical work and survey, which actually set the tone for the, the long and fruitful association between Philby and the society. So it wasn't just about doing something and kind of blasting for the line. It was actually reflecting the the care, yeah, the detail and the um, the education that he put himself through in order to create value from the expedition, um, not just the geopolitical value, but also the geographical value. I think in the same way as we talk about you know, Lawrence and we talk about um, Thesiger, you know, it's someone who was deeply absorbed in a part of the world which we can't know now, but through the lens of their writings and their research, we can, we can still be linked to. So I, th I think that's the privilege of having the um, the repository that we've got from from Philby at the RGS. It's not just the A to B that is is the the reason for travel. You know, you, you don't you know, go for a walk because um, you want to get somewhere. You want you do you go for a walk because you want to experience it. So I think recreating it is important, and it does give us. A better understanding. It provides a context. It will provide depth to and place into context the information which he's left us. And I think Philby's willingness to deploy that that way of thinking in such a complex arena um, just shows its value. Um, so yeah, I I, um, I salute him uh, for what he, what he did and what he's left us. Mark, describe for me what difference having Philby's writing with you there, day by day, step by step, made to you while you were on the expedition? Oh, it, it added a, 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 another dimension um, that anyone travelling without that recourse to that writing would have such a shallow experience in comparison to the one that we were fortunate to have. I mean, every day we referred to his notes because A, it enabled us to follow his route as best we could it enabled us to really focus on the landscape around us because sometimes the landscape was very subtle and the changes were very subtle but he had a, an incredible ability to explain and detect that subtlety and it really made us search to look for that particular hill that he was describing far to the southwest for example but it just added so much it enabled us to appreciate the change um, it enabled us to appreciate the incredible hardship that he and his men were enduring on, on, on that journey. And, and I think it just added a whole new dimension to our understanding of the man. 
we are walking across what Philby described as the highlands of Najd, this area of um, Saudi Arabia where Philby wasn't entirely sure that Ibn Saud had the allegiance of the tribes and his purpose for doing this journey was to prove to Ibn Saud that he did. So he was travelling under the protection of Ibn Saud's men but even so, at this stage, they had to be cautious. And in his books, he says, we were now on the fringe of the Ataba marches. Hitherto, from the coast westwards, it had never been necessary to take precautions, either to conceal our presence or to guard our camps. Now it was different. We had turned aside from the road to be out of the way of chance passengers. We had camped in a hollow to conceal our campfire. Uh, among us were four men of the Ataba tribe who now assume responsibility for our safety. And at intervals they went forth to the surrounding sand hummocks and proclaimed to the world that we were travelling under the protection uh, and were men of Ibn Saud. Um, when Philby retur refers to a road, this was 1917, and it's not a tarmac road, it was the pilgrim road from um, Riyadh to Mecca, uh, um, uh, along which all of the pilgrims would go performing the Hajj go go and come back so it was a very well trodden path that's what philby referred to as a road it's marked with cairns on some of the small um the small hummocks that we walk past we can see cairns that to guide people across the landscape but also what guided philby was uh, fireplaces because uh, obviously if you're traveling in the depths of winter like we are trying to stay warm at night so lots of fireplaces people to cook what whatever they're able to catch and there was lots of wildlife here then herds of gazelle and uh, bustard and things like that but uh, very little today uh, plenty of bird life uh, for the ornithologists we've got the red starts and wheat ears and shrikes the butcher birds which impale their prey on the acacia thorn so there's plenty of wildlife around there's plentiful eagles today almost every rock has an eagle perched on top of it which is lovely to see not much evidence yet, despite all the rain, of the desert greening up, which is something that we associate with heavy rain. Often the desert turns green quite quickly, but the problem here is that it's actually so cold still that, that they won't germinate, the little seeds won't germinate. We saw some pictures last night that people sent us from Mecca where we're heading towards. We should be there in about 10 days' time, and it's really, really lush green vegetation, simply because they've had the same amount of rain, but because it's a much lower altitude and it's much warmer. So. Lots, uh, much easier to, uh, to, to germinate. So uh, I think it's Saturday and uh, no it's not, it's Friday, um, January the 20th. But you know days and time really don't matter out here. You can probably hear the wind screeching through a small acacia bush just behind me. I'm sitting in the middle of a gravel plain with a blanket over my head trying to kill the wind so I can get this podcast out um, because the wind has swung around from the north to the south the temperatures have risen and um, life is a bit more comfortable after the cold uh, nights of the last uh, 48, 72 hours so first of all a quick update on the team um, I am progressively better um, Anna, poor girl, is now on a dose of antibiotics from the local pharmacy and uh, still cannot speak uh, very well at all, um, but she has a bit more energy about her too, so hopefully in a couple of days she, she'll be on the road to recovery. Alan and Reem are obviously made of much uh, tougher stuff than um, Anna and I. But uh, we're all in good spirits. It's uh, day five. We're kind of a third of the way through, the second leg of our journey from Riyadh to Jeddah. And 
you know, the standout from yesterday really has to be the, the, the beautiful granite scenery that Reem and I walked through for much of the day. And as we did so, looming larger in the distance, this long line of mountains, which Philby said stretched up to 6,000 feet altitude, Jebel Damk. And uh, that was our target yesterday. Uh, we reached there about an hour and a half before sunset. And I have to say it was probably so far the most beautiful campsite we've had on the journey. The ground around was quite muddy still, but we were able to find some low gravel terraces onto which we put our tents and our tables to settle down for a beautiful night under some large acacia trees. Uh, beautiful, beautiful spot. Ravens, crag martins, uh, more shrikes, uh, eagles, a couple of old ancient burial mounds on the top of the mountains above us looking down and a lovely sunset and an almost no moon now. And just a sliver of a crescent which will disappear we think probably tonight or tomorrow. So the stars last night were absolutely amazing. Jupiter, um, Venus and Saturn were all, all very very bright in the sky. It's the first com completely clear night we've had so a star-filled sky all night, not a single cloud uh, in any direction. You know, the, the wet ground uh, was, it was an issue for Philby too when he was travelling. Camels don't like travelling on wet ground and their pads give them no grip at all and if they slip on the mud, uh, and it does get very, very muddy, it sticks to vehicle tyres so much that the wheels won't even go around under the arches. It's, it's just like wallpaper paste and porridge all mixed together. So it's horrible stuff to drive over. It's even worse to ride a camel over because A, the camels sink. They don't like that sinking feeling, but also it sticks to their pads. So, you know, traveling through such terrain is very difficult, but it has its advantages. And Philby commented in his book, so if you come to a water hole when you're driving through sand desert, it can take half a day to lower a, a goatskin bag down a well and uh, water your camels, most of it leaking out by the time you've pulled the the goat skin up to the surface of the well. Um, but because there was such plentiful water in puddles, the camels were able to drink and, and take their fill as they traveled. So they were able to, they weren't losing so much time. Uh, so I guess that was, uh, that was a bonus. Uh, a couple of days ago, we said farewell to uh, three lads from the Saudi press agency who'd been with us from when we set off from Riyadh. And, uh, one of them was uh, a wonderful poet, um, Talal al-Anesi. And uh, Talal would um, serenade us with poems around the fire and uh, as we were walking. And uh, poor Reem is exhausted having to translate all this. But, you know, he spoke about um, his faith in God and how his time here on earth is only temporary, but therefore he wants to... Um, be as good a person as he can in that time but but where he but he also spoke about how he found peace and serenity being out in the desert and the simplicity of life and uh and i think that's what motivates the four of us anna reem alan and myself we all enjoy the environment in which we're living and traveling <laughs> واحد على الهجن حدي والذيب ما هروا العبث والرجم يشهد من رقاه وانا بذ الليله بدي يعني بذ الليله بدي 
أشم ريحة عطرها ويسكر على عطري شذاه جيتك مهرول يا جبل والنادرة بي تعدي تصيح يا فريسها تبغى معي درب النجاه والليل دامس بالظلام حتى دليلته غدي نطحتها يا ناشدي والذيب يوحي في عواه سهيل صوت لي وانا عيني توايق للجدي اما تجي يا سهيلها ولا عساني لرماه ما دامت الدنيا كذا بعيش وقتي سرمدي نكرتني عقب الوفا ما هكذا رد الجزاه تعال نحسبها سوى ما عاد فيها معتدي البوصله تغيرت وصارت على غير اتجاه من اول احسبهم معي وانا الحافه المرتدي واثر الثعالب ترتدي وتحفر لي القبر وخفاه لا يدروب المرجله انا على سلك الهدي وللتفت للخايعه نقالت الحكي وقفاه انا الكريم ابن الكريم ولا الردي طبعه ردي اخر بشوت شفتها تلهث عن البشت وذراه وما كل من دق الصدر يصبح ذرايا الجرهدي كم بندق ثورتها تمعود لصوتي صداه وكم امراه تسوى رجل وقفاتها وسط صمدي ودك تلبسها شماغ وتلبس الرجل العباه شيوخ اول درهمت وجتنا دراهمها فدي ما هو فدا لعيوننا وفهم كلامي يا نباه البرد قارص ولنا ساطي مع الغربه وحدي قيس الملوح قالها واللي جلاني هو جلاه عصريه مرت علي وجن الشعر متمردي تصيح بعلى صوتها ورجلي خلا يم السراه وش ننتظر وش ننتظر ومالنا معلقه بيوم الغدي نبي نسوي والحصيل صرنا عبيد للرعاه في هالزمن صار الطلي يسرح مع الذيب عدي وطيور شلوه عودت بين الحباري والقطه ثانك يو واو You know, podcasts are great, but what they don't capture is facial expressions and passion. I'm sure the passion of that came through, but the gesticulations and and not pausing for one word, not reading anything. Fantastic. Now, Reem, I heard, I heard wolves and all sorts of things hidden away in that. Could 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 you could you try and summarise a little bit? I know it's very difficult. Mainly talking about a very ambitious person who is always looking into the future and into uh, uh, climbing the mountains and. and reaching high high things in life so he's talking about reem filby then i take it great sheikh talal shukran jazeelan that was wonderful thank you i mentioned the project searching for lithic arrowheads a little earlier one of the other projects the heart of arabia expedition is involved with is setting up camera traps each night to film the nocturnal wildlife of the desert. Reem has diligently been putting those traps out uh, every night. We've had about um, 60, 75% success rate, I would say. So we put a tin of smelly tuna down under a, a tree that's a reasonable distance away from where we're sleeping. And then we rigged the camera trap up. And during the night, if anything comes to eat that uh, tuna then um, we will be able to record it on the camera trap sadly we we don't see the results until we hand the camera back to Roxanne Whelan and her team of ecologists at Kaust the university just north of Jeddah uh, but hopefully we're contributing something to um, Roxanne and her team's knowledge of um, mammals in Central Arabia. On Legwan, we had some lovely footage that Roxanne sent us when she uh, went through the SIM card of all the video clips that had been captured, a uh, lovely fox, uh, jerboa, and a couple of gerbils. So 
we have no idea what's uh, been taking the bait this time, uh, but we look forward to seeing the results of those. But really, I think today was uh, a great um, example of patience getting its reward. After our walk this morning, Reem and I, we uh, lots of ups and downs, so it might only have been 13 kilometres in a straight line, but we did much more than that, weaving in and around. So it was nice to um, see Alan and Anna in the support vehicles. We jumped in with them and we covered a bit of ground to a place where Alan had um, found a hand axe many years ago. So we knew that there was a potential of finding some. So we probably spent about two hours this afternoon pacing backwards and forward, staring at the ground, but nothing, nothing, nothing. And uh, really we were at the point of giving up. It was four o'clock, I think, by the time we'd finished the second search. And, and, and again, four of us searching in a line, absolutely nothing. And then we came to the final site and it was just so exciting. Within, within f less than five minutes of getting out of the vehicles, we'd found multiple hand axes. And these hand axes are unbelievably considered to be hundreds of thousands of years old. So goodness knows what the hand that touched that stone tool, uh, the last hand, looked like. But we'll send all the data. Alan's got a busy time now because I, th I think in the end, <coughs> having, having not found anything for three weeks of looking since we left the east coast of Saudi Arabia, but all of a sudden we're, we're on a site that's really rich and I think we found six or eight, I lost count in the end, because once you find one you can, you develop the eye for what they look like and you find more, so absolutely beautiful. One of them pure white made out of quartz, one of them pure black probably made out of basalt or obsidian or something like that, really, really hard rock. So that was a really, really exciting end to the day and put a real spring in our steps and uh, so probably the latest um, arrival at campsite we've had, literally half an hour before sunset, we didn't really find anywhere that sheltered, but thankfully the wind has dropped, um, which is great. And all the, the stars are out again. There's not a, not a hint of light pollution in any direction right now. If I look um, to the west, I can see uh, Jupiter and Saturn and Venus all up together in the sky. It's absolutely spectacular. And at this point of his journey, Philby, like us, was about to exit this area of, of land that he called the uh, Central Najd Highlands, this high plateau in Central Arabia, this row after row, line of line of mountains, um, mountain ranges, line after line after line, interspersed with sand. And that's what Reem and I have been, and Alan and Anna have been navigating over the last uh, several days. But in his book, uh, Heart of Arabia, Philby wrote uh, with a real sense of regret that he was leaving this landscape because clearly he would like to have spent much more time. Uh, such was the sort of geographical curiosity that he had. And he says, of the general features of these gaunt and sparsely populated highlands, whose area cannot well be less than some 10,000 square miles, I have in these pages given a description sufficiently, if not indeed excessively detailed. Uh, I would um, very much agree with the latter. Um, Philby didn't do anything in scant detail. His details are incredibly excessive. I now pass for them probably to see them no more, regretting that the speed of travel imposed on me by the purpose of my journey had permitted of no deviation from the track trodden by the pilgrims of centuries, hastening even as we 
uh, hastened on the road to the holy city, and conscious that in the Najd properly so called, the true highlands of central Arabia, whose limits I have attempted to define, I had left for the wanderers of the future, well that may be us, many a knotty problem unattempted, and many a hidden mystery unsolved. Well, I think that's a great way to leave anywhere. Of the three great mountain chains and the tumbled confusion of sand billows and basalt rocks which complete the quadruple barrier, of the tempest playing over the massive granite mountains, of the rain-washed red rocks of the hamra glistening in the sunlight, of the mighty mountains dimly seen in the far south, of the charming groves and dingy villages and solitary turreted granges, of all these I carried away with me memories which words cannot describe or time efface. And I would agree with that. It's so hard to put it into words, and Philby was so much better with words than I am. But it is an extraordinary landscape, and Philby described it as, as, as you know, 150, 200 miles of, 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 of nothing, but it wasn't nothing. He, he was quite dismissive sometimes, but actually he went into such detail. There's so much to see, and we've really enjoyed the last few days of our, of our journey. Tomorrow's going to be our last day in the central Najd Highlands. We're <coughs> heading towards a place called Uruk Subai, a, a, an area of sand, and there we enter another um, area of uh, Central Arabia, heading southwest towards the mountains of the Hejaz and the city of Taif. And uh, there we'll gain a lot of altitude before we descend down to the sea to Jeddah. But we've got quite a few miles to get under our belt before we reach Taif. I think um, today is Saturday. We'll probably reach Taif on Thursday, Friday. So we've got four or five days of... Of, of, of more plodding but uh, if the days ahead are anything like today has been and yesterday was then, then we're really looking forward to it. So join me, Reem, Anna and Alan in the next and final episode of the Heart of Arabia podcast. As we enter what Philby referred to um, as the Holy Land, and we explore the mountain city of Taif before reaching Journey's End on the Red Sea coast. This is uh, the Red Sea. We've reached Jeddah, so a little, little bit of a sound of the waves breaking on the, on the beach here in Jeddah. If I raise my head, I'm looking across at Sudan across the way. So we started off looking at um, Iran and Bahrain, now we're looking at Sudan. Journey's end in our expedition following in the footsteps of Harry Sinjin Abdullah Philby. Do remember to subscribe to and follow the podcast so you join us for those last few days of the journey. If you've enjoyed listening to our expedition, then please let us know. You can leave a review or tell us about it on our social media channels. Just search for Heart of Arabia Expedition. The Heart of Arabia Expedition podcast is an adventurous audio production.